Just now we're going to take a moment and read our Bible passage together for today. So if you have a, a look with me, Genesis chapter 48 on page 54. Um, Genesis 48 on page 54. We're going to read from verse 1 there. Uh, Carly McGee is going to read for us today. Carly is, I think, our newest member because I signed Carly up on Thursday, so I don't think anybody's joined the church since then. Uh, Carly's been around since last summer, um, and we've got to know her in the introduction to discipleship group. So, Carly, thank you for reading for us today. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. I will make your community of people, and you will, I will give you this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now then, your two sons, born to you in Egypt before I came here, will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours. In the territory they will inherit, they will reckon under the names of your brothers. As I was returning from Paddan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan, while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrath. So I buried her there beside the road to Ephrah, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, who are these? They are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, bring them to me so that I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim to the right of, towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left toward Israel's right hand, and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the youngest, and crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my father Abraham and Isaac. And may they increase greatly on the earth. Amen. Genesis 48, page 54. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the ways in which you have been speaking to us uh, through this uh, ancient part of your word, this story of the life of Joseph and his family. Thank you for all that you've let us see of your heart for your people. Thank you for all those glimpses we've seen already of your son, Jesus. Uh, we pray you'd be with us today. Spirit, come, take this word and let it live for us today. Amen. I was chatting to somebody this week who 
had asked me, well, how far have you gotten the Joseph story? And I said, well, he's reconciled to his brothers. And they said, well, that's it, isn't it? It's over. And I said, well, it feels like it's getting near the end, but it's not over. There are still uh, three chapters of uh, a wonderful conclusion. So today we're in chapter 48. Um, and I suppose the thing I want you to notice in a general way about the chapter is that Jacob's, uh, Joseph's dad, Jacob, is dying. Over the last uh, few weeks, I've spent a bit of time with a couple of friends from our congregation whose dads have passed away. And that, that gave me pause to remember a time five years ago when, when I had that experience. As, as I was thinking about that and chatting with the, the fellas, um, at least on one occasion I found myself remembering and maybe sharing that the old spiritual writers used to say that you can't, you can't live well until you've prepared yourself to die until you've thought about what this is that lies ahead, this, this reality that all of our lives on this earth will one day end. So that's what we're going to think about today. As we come back to this Joseph story, we're going to get an opportunity to think about what it means to, to die well. Um, in the passage there, if you keep an eye on it as I, I share, we're, we're brought really right to to old Jacob's deathbed, and it's a, a holy time and a, and a profound time because we're going to get an insight in, here into what kind of a man Jacob has become, what, what, what his life has, um, I suppose what the fruit of his life is. Um, we're going to be convinced, I think, in the end. I, I, I maybe hadn't paid attention to this part of the story enough. I, I had this idea that Joseph was a chancer for the most part. If you read, or Jacob, sorry, if you read the Jacob narratives, he's, uh, he, you know, he's, he is a bit of a chancer. And, and even towards the end of, of the part of Genesis where it deals mostly with Jacob, I, I'm still not persuaded. I, I'm sort of thinking, well, I'd like to see if this guy really has changed. Chapter 48 helps. This twisted and crooked man has finally become Israel, a man of wisdom and truth, the father of a nation, the people of God. We're told in verse 1 that Joseph's been told that his dad's ill, and, and it's no ordinary illness this time. This time he's coming down with that final and terminal illness. He, he's dying. In our culture, we, we still talk about, you've maybe heard this, uh, if somebody in a, in a family is ill, the family are sent for, you, you know, and they show up at the hospital, maybe hoping to, to gather there as a family before their, their loved one passes away. Well, this passage has very much that moment, that feel to it. Uh, Joseph's been sent for uh, because Jacob is... Is dying. So he arrives at his father's bedside with his two sons, and, and, and their arrival seems to lift old Jacob one last time, and he sits up on his bed, and he, and he starts talking. And sometimes people's long-term memory at the end of a long life is better than their, their immediate and their short-term, so he reaches way back, verse 3, and he talks about his life 
God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan where he blessed me and he said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. I'll make you a community of peoples and I'll give this land as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. Jacob is reminding Joseph of his story, of Jacob's story. But he's doing it because he wants Joseph to see that it's his story and that it must become the story of Manasseh and Ephraim and it must be the story of their children after them and after them. He says, I'm a descendant of my father, my grandfather Abram, the one who first received the promises of God. I'm a descendant of my father Isaac, to whom the promise of a land and a people was handed down. I carry the same promises of God, Jacob's saying. I might have lived 17 years now, the end of my life in Egypt, and the prosperity we have enjoyed in Egypt could well have become formative. We thought about this last week, but it's not the prosperity, it's the promises of God that this old man is clinging to. I'm not an Egypt man, says Jacob. I'm a Canaan man. It's one of the most beautiful scenes in all of Scripture. And we're going to listen in on the conversation a wee bit this morning. I want, I want us to notice three things. Jacob's greatest concern, his dying wish, and his gratitude. So try to picture the scene if you can. Joseph, second most uh, powerful man in Egypt, He's come here from his palace where he's got hordes of servants. They give him the best of food. They, they groom him to within an inch of his life. So he lives a, a, a very opulent and sophisticated and, uh, and comfortable life. He has everything that he needs. And now he's come to see his dad, Jacob, the old farmer, the old shepherd in Goshen. He's in his Bedouin tent, I think. Uh, compared to the luxury of the palace, it's, it's all very ramshackle. There's people living at close quarters. They're all on top of each other. Not much room around the old man's bed even. Uh, and judging by the noise and the smell, the, the sheep that they look after aren't far away either. So it's very much in contrast to Joseph's lifestyle there in the palace. He's come to visit his dad in Goshen. Notice a strange thing that he says, verse 5, regarding Joseph's two sons. He says that he wants Joseph's two sons to be reckoned as his. He wants, them to, he wants to treat them as members of his own family, to adopt them, if you like. Now, he's got other grandkids. He's got, you know, he's got 11 other sons. So why, why this focus on, on adopting Joseph's sons into his family. Well, it's here that we get an insight into our first interest this morning, his greatest concern, Jacob's greatest concerns. He knows that these two, more than any other of his grandchildren, face a decision. The time's coming now when they need to decide, are they going to be Egypt men or Canaan men? Try to imagine it for a second from the, the perspective of uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. They have grown up in Joseph's palace, fabulously wealthy since they, they were first born. 
Um, as children, they had the best toys, they had the best education. As teenagers, they had the best gadgets and the fastest cars are their equivalent. They have the admiration, they have the, the obedience of the whole of this huge nation. So these two men have Egypt at their feet. And then their cousins, Jacob's other grandchildren, the, the children of the other uh, sons of Jacob. They were part of a culture that was about a thousand years behind in terms of development than the culture of Egypt. They were the equivalent of country hillbillies in, in your wider family. And now there's this choice that these two young men face. It's going to be one or the other. Are they going to be Egypt men or are they going to be Canaan men? That's Jacob's greatest concern, to see where his grandsons end up, to see his grandsons commit to the God he followed and his father and his father before him. Folks, that choice is every bit as real for us today as it was for, for Joseph's two sons over 3,000 years ago. By the way, what age are these men, uh, these two sons? We know that they were born before Jacob came to Egypt, so they're at least 17, but probably not a whole lot more than that. So they're in their late teens or their early 20s. They're at the stage of some people here this morning, in the final years of school, university students, graduates, maybe young professionals, first-time house buyers, newlyweds. They're faced with the choice of a lifetime. Who am I going to be? We're in these years when our identity, our adult identity, is still taking shape. Am I going to remain in the dominant culture, just live like everyone around me, be an Egypt man or woman, or am I going to be a Canaan woman or man? Will I identify myself only with the culture or with this, this weaker and insignificant and rather pitiful community of God? That was their choice back then, and it's our choice. It's our choice today. It's got to be one or the other. I've got to choose to live in this world shaped by all of its values or to pursue something that that seems weak, behind the times, parochial by comparison. We can choose to follow Jesus Christ. We can choose to follow somebody who was born in a cattle shed, somebody who lived in a Galilean backwater. We can choose to follow somebody who was crucified on a Roman cross for his humiliation at a public crossroads. And we can choose to associate with this pitiful community that we still call church. Which, which way is it going to be? An Egypt man or woman? Or will you be a Canaan man and woman? following Jesus.
So Jacob's greatest concern is to see his grandsons walk in his ways, to follow the living God. And once he's made clear his, his intention to, to treat Joseph's son as his own, Jacob shares with them his dying wish. He wants to bless them. We're, we're going to overlap a wee bit with last week here. Do you remember the, the fictional character I introduced you to or reintroduced you to, John Amos? And I talked about how he noticed that among God's people there are the, the, the older ones, some of whom he describes like this, the old folks who want to bless us every chance they get. Well, that's Jacob. Just watch him in these three chapters. Just wants to bless everybody. If you'd been passing through his tent, he'd have reached out to you and he would have wanted to speak God's best for you. The blessing here comes in a poetic and a a very, very beautiful form. Please don't miss this. You, You maybe have a look as I just draw our eye back to it. May the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who's been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth. Isn't that beautiful? We're wondering what kind of a man Jacob turned out to be. You can't talk like this if you don't know the Lord and haven't walked with him a long time. He came to know God through the witness of his his grandfather Abram and his father Isaac. And not only is Jacob clear that God is his God, but he's absolutely clear that he wants that for his grandkids. Verse 16, May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abram and Isaac. He doesn't mean make sure these fellas get our surname. That's not what he means. The name means who we are, our identity. Make sure these young men follow in the family story, become young men of God. What we have here is an old saint And he's taken his greatest concern and he's giving it an expression in his words, in his dying wish. Lord, may they find you to be their savior every bit as much as I have. Is this our greatest desire for our kids and for our grandchildren? the people around us whom we get a chance to interact with and influence, is our deepest longing for them that they get to know Jesus, the Savior of the world. It seems to me that we we need to communicate this maybe a little bit more fully, maybe with more than just words. You see, it seems possible to me that we could be making a a big deal in in our words and, and in our superficial actions that we're saying, yes, I'm inviting my kids and my grandkids to follow Jesus. But it's possible that all the time our lives are belying our words. It's as though we're saying to our kids, Jesus is number one in this house. Don't let our continual focus on educational achievement on wealth creation and consumption, on reputation and status throw you 
Jesus is number one in this house. If there's one thing I'm learning about teenage kids in particular, they have a honing instinct for hypocrisy. They can sniff it from kilometers away. You don't get to say one thing and live another and expect to be respected. Our words, let's keep pointing our kids to Jesus with our words. But let's do it with our lives too. Let's live lives that if we were struck dumb and couldn't say another word to our kids, they would become the most godly man and woman possible because they simply walk in our ways and follow our example. Jacob's dying wish was for his grandsons to find saving faith in the living God. That's got to be our dying wish too. We've talked about his greatest concern and how it, it found expression in his dying wish. I want to spend the last few moments pointing out something that we might miss in a passage like this, but I think it's probably very persuasive. I think it would have been for me if I'd been in that tent and listened to this conversation. It's Jacob's gratitude. I want to point it out and then reflect for the last few moments on why gratitude might be way more important than we ever realized for anyone who wants to live well and die well. Old Jacob, he is oozing gratitude. There's just a feel of it throughout this chapter. Look at verse 11. 17 years now since he's first reunited with his son, and yet he hasn't lost, he's still pinching himself. He hasn't lost the sense of wonder. I never expected to see your face again. And now God's allowed me to see you and your children too. 17 years later, still grateful to God for his family. Look at how he speaks of God. Verse 15. God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. Who knew, eh? David gets all the credit from his psalm with its famous opening line, the Lord is my shepherd. Should have had a footnote on it. Should be paying royalties to Jacob. Jacob is the first person in Scripture that I know of who describes the Lord with this beautiful metaphor. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful particularly if you're a shepherd, and he is. He's lifted a metaphor right from his everyday life, and he attributes those qualities to God. He's saying, all my life, I've looked after sheep. I've fed them. I've cared for them. I've watched the mothers as they give birth to their young. I've tended the mothers in their vulnerability and I've tended the young and raised them up. I've done all of this. I've given my life to the best interests of these sheep. 
Lord, I see it now. <laughs> That's what you've done for me. You've done it all for me. All my life, right to this day, 147 years. You are my shepherd, and I'm grateful. Thank you. Verse 16, he expresses a, a very particular um, aspect of God's work in his life that he's grateful for, his protection. He describes God as the angel who's delivered me from all harm. It might be weird for us to, to hear somebody describe God as in terms of an angel. An angel is, is not normally thought of as God. An angel's a messenger from God. But for Jacob, bear in mind how he first encountered the living God. He's lying under the stars with his head on a stone, running away from home as a young man. And he has this vision, and it's of a stairway that joins earth and heaven, and there are angels on it, ascending and descending. He's being shown that there is a connection between heaven and earth. And he's been invited, I think, to, to see his life as connected with the life of God. Maybe if you get to know God that way, maybe this, this idea that God's an angel, that he, he comes to us, is one that he can't quite shake off. He's grateful here to this God, this angel who's protected him and who saved him over and over again. There was that night in Bethel, the one I've just described. He's run away from Esau's murderous rage and God promises to be with him and to save him. There was that time when his uncle Laban is pursuing him and again, it feels like he's in great danger and God intervenes and he protects him. There's that time when he, he has to come back to, to meet up with Esau who'd threatened to kill him 20 years earlier and again, God protects him. There's, there's all that awful stuff that was going on in his family with his grown-up sons and, and God protects him. There's that famine that they've just lived through where, where let's imagine that some other families weren't quite so fortunate and able to come through. But God, the protecting angel, has brought him through that again. For old Jacob, as he looks back on his life, he's in absolutely no doubt at all. God is his savior who's protected him. And he's grateful. I, I don't know, I've, I'm sure I've said this before, and one thing I wonder, I just wonder if gratitude's in short supply in our culture these days. I uh, was reminded of this in a, in a very funny way recently. Um, we were watching a, an early episode of The Simpsons, and they're around the dinner table. I'm, I'm, I do enjoy the graces that are said around the dinner table. Homer will often say grace um, in ways that are less than edifying, it's probably fair to say. But it was Bart's turn. So they have this wonderful feast. They've got a, a guest of honor. It's, it's beautiful, a lot of good food in front of them. They bow their heads and Bart says, Dear Lord, we paid for all this stuff ourselves, 
So thanks for nothing. Amen. Now, depending on how used you are to watching The Simpsons and knowing how to deal with your moral outrage and your self-righteousness, let it sit with you for a moment. Dear Lord, we paid for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. Isn't that how we live? Sure, it's all my stuff anyway. I earned it. I did the work, I got the salary. Claire went to Tesco's. Folks, I think we have landed in times when we have a very, very diminished sense of gratitude and a very, very enhanced sense of our own entitlement. We feel entitled to what we already have and we imagine that if the world was only put to rights, we would have more than we have. Grateful for what? Grateful? Not a bit of it. Folks, it seems to me that cultivating gratitude through midlife and into old age might be one of the greatest gifts we can give to our children and our grandchildren and anybody else who's close enough to observe our lives. It strikes me too that it might be a, a, a crucial um, and vital expression of the gospel in an ungrateful culture. What do I mean by that? Well, if I tell people, my kids included, that they should be following Jesus, and, or, or if I even imply that by living a public Christian life and saying, you know, you should be living that too. If I do that, but I'm constantly expressing or even exuding a, a sense of discontentment, or of a, a, a lack of gratitude, a sense of entitlement, then surely anybody watching my life comes to the conclusion that Jesus simply isn't all he's cracked up to be. He promises life to the full, but Christoph is still as preoccupied with all the other stuff that anybody else is. He still feels as hard done by for what he feels he should have but doesn't have that person observing my life would be absolutely at liberty to say, Jesus, no thanks. I don't, need, I don't need that. But what if I wake up every day? What if I grow every year with a greater sense of gratitude to God? Grateful for every meal that he's put on my plate, for the education that he offered me that I sort of took advantage of, the work I get to do, the world I get to live in, the Savior who, who loved me and gave himself for me. What if gratitude becomes the melody line of my life? What's that going to do to my kids and my neighbors and my friends? If they see in me a man deeply satisfied 
in Jesus Christ and all the things that God's given me, they might just be left wondering, goodness, there must be something in this. I I need to have another look. Who wouldn't want to be part of a family like that? Who wouldn't want a God like that? Folks, we've been at Jacob's deathbed here today and we've been thinking about what it might mean to to die well and we've noticed his greatest concern, his dying wish, and his gratitude. In her book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, Annie Dillard gave me a lovely vision for how I'd like to finish my life. It's in one very short sentence. She says that, she says this, the dying pray at the last, not please, but thank you. The dying pray at the last, not please, but thank you. That's what I want to be saying on my deathbed. Thank you. I don't want to be lying there looking back on the things in life that I imagined I was entitled to or felt I should have had that I didn't have. I want to be like Jacob, to look back and see his endless goodness to me. And I want to finish by saying thank you. Thank you. Thank you.